Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, everybody. Welcome into another episode of the Can We Please Talk podcast. As always, I'm Mike Leon. I'm Nick Saveri. On the program today, Justice Breyer stepping down, what that means from the lens of the Supreme Court and who Biden may have on his radar as a potential pick. Nick and I will discuss that later on in the program. Presidential historian. She's the author of the fantastic book, uh, George, the cabinet, George Washington, the creation of an American institution. And she's a senior fellow at the Center for Presidential History over at SMU. Dr. Lindsay Chervinsky will be joining us on the podcast. She's going to grade Biden's first year in office. She's going to draw some historical parallels to the way misinformation happened back in the day to what's happening now. And then in our final segment, we are going to talk about speaking of misinformation and disinformation the Joe Rogan experience and the recent statements by Spotify and Joe Rogan. But first, no misinformation here. This is an actual fact. My friend of 23 plus years, Nick Saveri. Nick, how you doing, man? I haven't talked to you in a while. I'm, I am now back in Florida, back at being a Florida resident. Uh, it is 64 degrees and sunny and you are freezing in the Northeast. What's going on? Well, Good. <laughs> now it's funny because the first thing that popped in my head is you back in Florida. It's like, okay, we'll make sure you're starting to stockpile books like Dr. Javinsky's for your girls because I can almost promise you that what's what's going on right now in the state of Florida, you should be a little critical about what they're going to learn in school eventually when they, when they get there. Right. Um, no, all is all is good in Eastern Pennsylvania as always. It is indeed a little cold, but we are not getting as nearly as much snow, much to my older daughter's chagrin. But we're good, man. Healthy and happy. And um, recent reports are telling us that the vaccine for below five-year-olds may potentially be, or from Pfizer, may potentially be out by the end of February. And we're, I mean, we're about, we're about to get into February, so we're looking at a couple of weeks from now and starting to have another moment of celebration when our youngest may potentially be eligible. Yeah, that, that's that's awesome to hear. Uh, yeah, look, we had Dr. Offit. Go check out that episode with with Dr. Paul Offit that we did recently, the professor of pediatrics over at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and he's on the FDA advisory committee. And he was great in terms of talking about, you know, vaccinations for kids, too. So if you have kids out there, you listen to our program regularly and kids obviously under the age of like, you know, 10, you know, uh, specifically, but go listen to that episode. He was fantastic when he came on the program. You know, one of the things I wanted to mention before we dive into our, our first segment about Justice uh, Stephen Breyer stepping down uh, at the end of his term, um, something that just kind of struck a, a chord with me, and it was mainly because I'm familiar with the building. Uh, we lived a few blocks away from it. Um, Chesley Christ, if you don't know the story, the former Miss USA girl who uh, jumped from a Manhattan apartment building uh, and was pronounced dead, obviously, at the scene 
this was on January 30th. Um, you know, in all seriousness, folks, Nick and I, uh, we've done uh, an episode on support groups, um, and we uh, we had better help as a sponsor on on the program. And if you know somebody, or even if you are going through something uh, mental health wise, um, this has resonated with me recently, just because I, I you know I know a friend who took his life a few years back. And um, when I read that story, you know, obviously she was a correspondent over on Extra. She was 30 years old. Um, you know, she won the Miss USA pageant back in 2019. And, you know, I just saw this because a, a friend of mine who knew her, who's a reporter in the Orlando area, had posted this. And I was like, I, I want to mention at the at the top of the show, since we haven't recorded and it just happened, um, please get, get that get the help that you need um, to be 30 years old, man. And, you know, really on, uh, I wouldn't say on top of the world, obviously, I don't know her situation, but, you know, given everything that's, that's going on with her and the millions of followers that she had across social, and it just shows that you really don't know what's happening with people underneath it all. And, you know, if you know somebody, or even if you are going through something like this, please seek out, you know, help and, and talk to somebody about that because, it's terrible when I when I heard that the other day, and I kind of wanted to give it some attention here and, and seriousness um, about that. Uh, our thoughts and prayers to her family. Um, as best as I can, a transition to uh, Justice Stephen Breyer. So recently, Justice Breyer announcing that he will be stepping down at the end of his term. Uh, the president, uh, Joe Biden, met with him, and now everyone's talking about, well, who Biden will put in office? Take a quick listen to a summation of, of Justice Breyer stepping down and, and what this means uh, for President Biden. Well, according to people who are familiar with the justices thinking, and we should clarify, we have not heard from Justice Breyer directly, but according to people that he has talked to, he's made this decision within the past couple of weeks to step down and has told the White House they're fully prepared now to, uh, to take the next steps that will follow. And as you said, Lester, he has been repeatedly urged during the past term to step down while Democrats control both the White House and the Senate so that his nominee can be confirmed while the Democrats are still in control to maintain the current six to three split on the court, six conservatives to three liberals. And that's what his retirement would do. Now, according to the people we have talked to, several officials who are familiar with his thinking, his intention is to retire at the end of this term. Sometimes when justices step down, they say they will retire at the point where their successor is confirmed. But apparently what Justice Breyer has decided to do, according to people who are familiar with his thinking, is that he would step down at the end of this contentious term, which of course will be dominated by the issue of abortion with the question of Roe v. Wade very much before the court, gun rights, religious freedom, and many other hot button issues in this current term. So it will still be a barn burner of a term for the justice. You know, recently, Nick, obviously, we know that uh, President Trump and the recent Supreme Court justices that he put on the bench from Gorsuch to Brett Kavanaugh to Amy Coney Barrett, uh, giving the conservatives a 6-3 majority, a super majority right now on the court. Uh, Breyer is one of the three that uh, liberal judges. He is turning 82, I believe, this year or is already 82. And now everyone's turning attention to who will President Biden actually nominate? All right. There's a bunch of different picks out there. And he, the White House has mentioned that they want to nominate a woman of color, uh, which is very big. More than 100 influential black women leaders have thanked President Biden in a letter for honoring his promise to nominate a black woman to the Supreme Court if, if he were to get the chance 
during his term to nominate uh, somebody onto the onto the panel. Uh, South Carolina U.S. District Judge uh, J. Michelle Childs is among the the people President Joe Biden is considering. Uh, there's some other women on the short list, including, if you know the appellate uh, circuit and the D.C. circuit, Judge uh, Katanji Brown Jackson. She is. A lot of people are talking about her because that um, that panel is probably next in line to fill a Supreme Court vacancy. It's always seen as the next step up. California Supreme Court uh, Justice Leandra Kruger. Um, there's a couple of other names that are being floated out there. Your takeaways when you heard about a lot of people have been uh, specifically on the Democratic angle, been trying to pressure. We've seen campaigns <laughs> to Stephen Breyer to retire because the Democrats didn't want a repeat of what happened with Ruth Bader Ginsburg a while back. And that's why President Trump was was able to fill that seat with Amy Comey Barrett. He's now announcing he's going to step down and President Biden will hopefully be able to, to, to get a judge, you know, uh, nominated onto the bench. Uh, give me some of your takeaways when you when you heard this news, because we haven't spoken uh, since our last taping. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's one of those it's one of those biggest moments you can have as a president. Um, and it's really, it really honestly, at its foundation, it's a reminder of the importance of elections beyond that of the white house. Um, you know, cause immediately, you know, one thing that's been interesting about the Trump presidency is we're starting to learn a lot more about American politics, specifically the importance of the, of the Senate, uh, as we're about to go through this proceeding. Uh, we certainly saw it toward the end of president Obama's administration when uh, majority leader, Mitch McConnell said openly, that you know, at the end of a president's term, um, we're not going to let anyone get through, and that was purely political nonsense. Um, so we're going to see with a 50-50 split, how does this work? Um, yeah, you know, I commend Justice Breyer for recognizing that he's not in a place to serve or as well as he can. Um, you know, making a decision to move on, um, and I think it's just going to be. It's, I mean, it's going to. I tend to be cynical because I think the pro, the, the politics. In this case, it's just going to get ugly. Um, President Biden coming forward and and saying he was going to nominate a a black woman, you know, to the court, immediately starting to and I just have to call this out when you start having people immediately say things about, well, by saying this, he's immediately putting a standard to this person. The implication that by selecting a black woman, that so, somehow any standards of judicial excellence are in any way compromised. Because it's a black woman says so much about the way we view people of color in this country, and I'm in, I'm really interested in the discourse. I am very interested to see what in these upcoming hearings are going to be when one of these people gets put forward, and are they going to get the same level of questioning that we saw with Trump's three appointees that had gone through? I'm very curious about it, and I think just these are going to be interesting times ahead, as they've always been lately. But that's what sits with me, and at the same time, I just got to be honest. We, you know, our court's full of old people. Doesn't that just kind of scare people? Our average senator is well into being a senior citizen. You know, I'm 43. You know, Mike's a member of Club 40 now. As voters, you should all be paying attention to this. Why is it that we continue to basically have our country run by senior citizens? You know, you look at the rest of the world that's catching up, you know, and then again, this is no disrespect to, to Justice Breyer, but this something seems wrong about that, and I and yeah, you can call me ageist, but you know when you're making these critical decisions, I don't think someone in their 80s should be allowed to do that. Yeah, I think whatever 
whatever happens right now with the Supreme Court and who Biden will nominate um, is really interesting. And that stuff is going to play out over the coming months. We're going to have somebody on the program to discuss that more in depth, somebody who's been covering, you know, the Supreme Court, uh, a correspondent from one of the major publications out there. So more on that in the coming weeks as we learn more about who President Biden will actually nominate. And, and obviously, it looks like he'll have the votes to be able to get that person through. Speaking of history of, you know, the judicial, the executive uh, the branch, uh, we're going to have a fantastic presidential historian when we come back after the break. Dr. Lindsay Chervinsky will be on the program. Like I mentioned, she's the author of the book, The Cabinet, George Washington and the Creation of an American Institution. She's a senior fellow at the Center for Presidential History. Dr. Lindsay Chervinsky, when we come back after the break. Angie's List is now Angie, and caring for your home just got easier. Whether you need help with routine maintenance or a dream remodel, Angie makes it easy to see reviews, compare quotes, and connect with top local pros who can get the job done right. Plus, you can see upfront pricing and instantly book hundreds of projects. No phone tag, just the work you need done at a time that works for you. Angie's got your to-do list covered from start to finish. Book your next home project today at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot All right. I am so excited to talk to our guest today. We're going to get into how I found her on Twitter because that whole thing was a mess. We talked about that offline, but... She's a presidential historian, a senior fellow at the Center for Presidential History over at SMU down in Texas. Uh, She's the author of a book. I highly recommend you go get it. It's called The Cabinet, George Washington and the Creation of an American Institution. And that is Dr. Lindsay Chervinsky. Dr. Chervinsky, Mike Leon, Nick Saveri, uh, thank you so much for having on the podcast with us today. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. You know, the reason I reached out to you and we're going to get into all of you know, how Biden's doing in his first year. I know you've written some articles about that. We're going to get into the history of fake news and and misinformation, disinformation. I I shared that article with Nick and I thought it was fantastic. The parallels of everything that we're seeing happening, you know, not only from vaccine mandates, but, you know, uh, something that you wrote in that article about what the British did to forge letters from Washington. I just thought it was interesting. But first, speaking of misinformation, let's get into how we found each other. Somebody emailed you I think they called you similar to what we got as an email, a a liberal propaganda machine or something like that. And they left their phone number. Um, How do you deal with it? And that's not really criticism. I have no other word for it. But how do you deal with uh, people online? Give us some recommendations because Nick and I love to dive into the muck. How would you tell people to rise above diving into the muck? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, You know, I knew that it came with the territory before I started engaging in public history or public facing work, especially for women and younger women in particular, people just tend to say things that maybe they wouldn't say to other people or feel emboldened to send you quite ridiculous messages. Um, it, it is funny because, you know, uh, a lot of my writing, I don't get paid for. So it's pretty bad propaganda. If if that's my aim, um, I'm not getting a whole lot from it financially. Um, but, you know, I think one, of, I think there are two things to keep in mind. The first is if someone is legitimately asking a question or they are trying to engage in good faith discussion, I'm always happy to have that conversation. I'm always happy to have someone disagree with me if they want to do so in a respectful way and kind of have a give and take about dialogue. But a lot of the stuff online isn't that. And they're either not reading what you're saying or they're coming at it from such an angle that's 
so skewed and so displaced from reality that it says way more about them than it says about you. I mean, just think about the amount of time and effort it takes this person to Google me, to find my website, to find my contact information, which is not like hidden behind a passcode, but it's not super readily available. Then to type out these sometimes page long screeds and to include their name and their telephone number in this particular case, it's just really sad that someone is spending their day that way. And so most of the time I just view it with pity. You know, I'm I'm Love laughing. <laughs> I'm, I'm laughing because today in Florida, awesome. I got a fantastic welcome to Florida as the guy in the truck behind me had an F Joe Bryden, you know, flag hanging from his truck. And and my wife and I were like, you know what? I kind of respect that guy more than the let's go Brandon and uh, hiding behind what you truly want to say. <laughs> I, I mean, that's the stupidest flag to carry around, but okay. But I, I totally get that. You know, I want to shift because I, I just mentioned President Biden, uh, not Brandon, uh, you, you presidential historian hat. First term, uh, first year, excuse me, for President Biden in office. Nick and I, in our last episode, did a bunch of highs and lows. Uh, in terms of presidential history and rankings and everything that Biden has dealt with in the first year from Afghanistan, uh, obviously inflation, a pandemic. Is there any parallels in history that you can draw upon uh, of somebody going through as much as President Biden kind of came into? And also, how would you grade President Biden's uh, first year in office? Well, as all historians probably like to say, and this is very annoying of us, so I apologize, but so much of this judgment, we really kind of have to wait on because, for example, you know, President Obama, after his first year, did not have particularly good approval numbers. And indeed, his approval numbers only continued to rise once he left office. It's often not until someone has left, has retired, and we have some distance that we can actually evaluate a little bit more clearly or compare them to some of the alternatives sometimes gives us a really good appreciation for what we're looking at. So it's hard to say right now, if I was looking at Biden's first year, I would say there are some real positives. I'm sure some of the highs that you talked about last week in terms of the uh, in, in terms of the uh, infrastructure bill and the COVID relief package, um, getting the vaccines out was huge. Um, you know, you can't short of like sitting on someone and literally putting it in their arm. You can't force people to take it, but they made it readily available, which is a huge win. Um, and I think that, you know, having a president for me, at least that I don't have to think about every day, or I don't have to worry is going to give nuclear secrets to Russia is a really comforting shift. Um, now, of course, there are negatives as well. Inflation is a challenge. I think Afghanistan probably could have been handled a lot better. Um, so there's some ongoing challenges there. Uh, so I don't really have a, a perfect grade yet. I would probably say in the B range if I had to if I had to give a letter, although I think that that will change as we go forward and our sense of Biden's place in history evolves. In terms of who he is most like, in terms of the challenges of the first year, I think that the only real comparison is probably FDR because he also had a you know major financial collapse. He didn't have a pandemic, so I guess that's you know a benefit for for Roosevelt. One of the challenges that we often don't think about as much, but was very much on the center of Roosevelt's mind, was if the economy continued to collapse and Americans lost faith in the government 
to do anything about it. There was a real concern when he took office about the rise of fascism and other forms of of authoritarian government and a fear that the United States was drifting in that direction. Now, we don't really remember that because World War II happened and the United States ended up fighting the Nazis and um, other fascist governments. And so that part of the history sort of gets wiped out, but it was a real concern. And that's something that I do see a parallel in our current moment with the rise of you know white supremacist militias and political violence. So you kind of blew up my thought because you brought Roosevelt. Now, something that, that sits with me because, you know, as you, as you brought up, Dr., you know, with with you know, with the FDR, you know, coming to power in, in thirty three, I wonder, like in your research, do you find that just the, the discourse among Americans in reaction to a then economic, now both economic and you know global health crisis, our ability to rally around a leader in in the form of a president? Do you find that from the time of Franklin Roosevelt to now that we're in a place where the discourse seems more fractured? You know, I think about this from the article you had written about the history of fake news, and that's something that sat with me. Is like as a country, you know, from a historical standpoint, you know, what's your assessment of that? Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I think there have been periods where we've had really, really intense partisan division that has led or hinted at political violence. The 1790s, late 1790s, are an example. Of course, the 1850s and the lead up to the Civil War. Um, perhaps the 1890s, although that did not come to a violent end per se. But there's no doubt that in 19 in the 1930s, while there was a difference of opinion and there were different ideas about how to tackle the crisis, there wasn't the same sort of really intense partisan animus that we see today. And there wasn't a party who was dedicated to undermining the central tenets of democracy. Now, when I say that, people get really, really, really mad at me. I'm not talking about, you know, voter suppression bills. I'm not talking about um, vote by mail ballots. I'm not talking about any of those things. What I'm talking about is free and fair elections are the very center part of our democracy. And a peaceful transition of power and a widespread acceptance of that outcome is, is what our democracy is based on. And the Republican Party, one of their main tenets at the moment is to deny that Joe Biden won the election. And so that is very much an unprecedented situation that we have never had before. I like to draw the parallel to the Civil War. Southerners didn't like the outcome of the 1860 election, but they accepted it and they tried to leave because they accepted it. So I'm not suggesting the Civil War is a better outcome, but it's different than what we're facing now. On the subject of your article, one thing that you brought up was that, you know, from the time of President Washington to now, you know, there's always been a, a presence of bias. And with in the case of Washington, being very selective about where messaging goes or what to interpret from messaging uh, that comes back from that. Do you find that Americans now are more or less about the same level of discerning with understanding political forces at hand when it comes to media coverage? I think by and large, we're a little bit less perceptive of the, um, what's the, how to describe this. We're a little bit less perceptive about the range of news and sources that we might encounter. So let me give an example in the 1790s. There was crazy lies and, and misinformation. I mean, there's a, there's an example, I don't know if I included this in the article, but there's an example of at one point, a newspaper article 
said that Washington was going to, President Washington was going to be in a particular place. And it was an outright lie. And he thought it was because they wanted citizens to show up and then be disappointed that he didn't come and hold it against him. But newspapers just printed lies. There was no, um, there were no laws against, you know, um, printing uh, accusations or defamation against people. There were no protections against shouting fire in a crowded theater. So there were no restrictions on really what people could put into papers. The difference is that people understood that most papers were motivated by partisan animus. Most papers were designed to support one party or the other. And there were some that were sort of more in the middle, but everyone had a pretty clear sense about where the various papers fell on the political spectrum. Now, the problem we're facing today is that that was not always the case in American history. Starting around the 1890s, there was really a development of a journalistic ethos. There was a concept of journalism as an honorable profession and a pursuit of the truth to help uncover corruption and wrongdoing and advocate for reform and change. And that's a great thing. The problem is that a lot of people who are reading the news now grew up with that sort of journalistic ethos that continued through the 20th century. So they think of people like Walter Cronkite and the evening news that you could trust to be relatively well-informed. And so they go on to places like Facebook and they do not have the same lens to filter or evaluate the legitimacy of the sources that they are reading. Now, I don't want to be ageist, but there is a lot of uh, evidence and there are a lot of studies that suggest that this is kind of a generational problem. Generally, the younger generations are a little bit more skeptical about what they find online because they've grown up in that world and they've grown up in a world without those journalistic principles. So I am hopeful that this is a problem that can continue to get better and we can solve, but it is definitely a unique challenge. You know, you touched on a bunch of different things there. And I was telling you all fair about, you know, my career working in news and sports media, Nick's career, obviously working in education. So when you combine those two, there's there's a lot of synergy and a lot of overlap. I want to get into a couple of things because your article um, and the one that we were talking about that you were just talking about, about the misinformation and, you know, a real historical look at it. I would love for you to take our re- uh, our listeners through your readers, uh, as a historian, like what's been the through line for you on, on how misinformation has evolved? Because you touched on, well, now before people would just watch the local news. Before that, people would just read their paper. After now, in the 20th century, it's been people are getting it through social media. They're getting it from different places. For every 25 trusted sites, there's 10 more that could, you know, that are just blogs of our opinions, you know, and, and people are taking that as factual information. And we've done ton, tons of episodes about news judgment. So what's been a, a big through line for you as how misinformation has evolved and where does it end? Um, Solve the problem yeah. for us. <laughs> <laughs> well, historians are such terror, are notoriously terrible future predictors because we get so nervous when anyone asks us to say what's going to happen next because we're so used to looking backwards, but a couple of thoughts. So Misinformation and disinformation have always been around. Uh, One of the elements in this article that I nod to was during the Revolutionary War, uh, the British Army printed fake letters from George Washington to try and discredit his leadership. Uh, He didn't mention anything about them during the war. He just kind of ignored them. And then they came back up again in the presidency and he did uh, put out a statement and basically that these were false. But so it's just a good example of the fact that this kind of 
underhanded dealing has always been present and there wasn't a glory age of, uh, there weren't glory days or a golden age of, you know, news and information in a time when everyone acted honorably far from it. As I mentioned, the difference was, I think people had a more discerning view for where that information was coming from. And of course the access to that information was more limited. So it's not that people were, you know, everyone was illiterate because even if you couldn't read, you could go to the local tavern. People would often read newspapers aloud, but the pace of these things was slower. From information to cross the Atlantic took anywhere from four weeks if you were really lucky to 12 weeks if the weather was bad. Even mail up and down the Atlantic coast was just slower. And so every time that we've had a increase in technology or an innovation in technology, whether it be the, the, you know, starting with the printing press to radio and the telegraph and then television, there's always just been an additional um, element of availability. So it, it makes it more, makes it faster and easier for people to get that information. What I think we're seeing now with social media is our society just hasn't quite caught up yet. So whereas it used to be that you had three news channels to get your news at night and everyone sort of had a basic you know, a center core group of facts. Maybe you would listen to radio shows that had a perspective that you preferred compared to a different perspective. But at night you turned on the news and you only really had a couple of options. Now I don't watch the news. I get most of my news online. Now I try to really cultivate my sources and I suspect that my cultivation is a little bit more intentional than some others, but there isn't the same sort of shared set of facts that we used to have. There are, you know, alternative facts or fake news or whatever phrase you want to use to describe the alternative realities that seem to be going around. So I don't really know where that ends up. I think there are probably not to get super morbid here, but there are probably a group of people that are sort of beyond reaching at this point in terms of convincing them about what is reality, what is not. So for example, you know, I don't think I saw a conspiracy theory the other day that like Elvis Presley and JFK Jr. and Marilyn Monroe were secretly hiding out to help Trump come back to the White House. Um, I, I think it's probably pretty fair to say that's not happening. But if someone believes that, I'm not sure how you convince them otherwise. Right. I think what we have to do to what I think what I hope would be the future is that we would, um, you know, work on limiting the spread of intentionally false information that is dangerous and harmful to people's health. And then we try and teach people how to analyze their facts going forward. And hopefully with younger generations that will continue to have a positive impact. In this conversation of history, you know, we don't want, it's important to bring up the fact that you have an incredible book out, you know, talking specifically about uh, President Washington's uh, cabinet, the, the first cabinet. And, and it's interesting because when I saw the cover of the book and, you know, and, and started reading through it, obviously, like a lot of America, perhaps other parts of the world, you start to sort of hear the soundtrack, the Hamilton running through your head a little bit, you know, in your research. And as you're starting to have conversations about the book and talking to readers and various audiences, what are some myths that, you know, both in writing the book, you hope to dispel about that cabinet, but also now as the public discourse seems a little bit more pop culture friendly in understanding a little bit more of the um, members of the of you know founding family, because it's not just founding fathers, obviously, and we think of the important contributions of women too. But 
you know, where, where do you find yourself in terms of dispelling myths, but also helping to educate others as it relates to that first cabinet? It's a great question. So one of the main things that I, I hope people take away from the book is these are very real, flawed humans. They were brilliant and they were incredibly accomplished, but they were humans. And when they came into office in 1789, they had a written piece of paper that was the very best that they could come up with at that time. But Washington referred to the Constitution as imperfect. It was not this glorified document that you know was carved into a stone tablet. It was very much a set of compromises that he hoped future generations would improve on, recognizing that there were problems they had not solved. They also recognized that there were things about um, government and being in office and wielding power that they could not anticipate because they had no idea what was coming down the pike. They were about as good as predicting the future as historians, actually. And so when they got into office, they were incredibly flexible about what it meant to be the first president, to be the first secretary of state. And they were constantly evolving that process. So there was never one perfect moment of originalism, or if there was, it died very quickly because just a couple of months into office, Washington started sort of fiddling with things, trying to make things work as efficiently as possible. And I think that story is actually, first of all, way more inspiring because it should encourage us to try and constantly improve upon the project that they were working on as they intended for us to do. But it's also way more interesting because the messy, sort of juicy stuff, the behind the scenes debates, the ongoing squabbles about how things work, that is a way more interesting story than this like perfect thing that was gifted to future generations. How do you reconcile that when, because it's amazing, you just brought that important point that the founding fathers understood that this is a work in progress from the beginning. But then we think of, uh, for example, former Supreme Court justice, you know, no longer with us, Antonin Scalia. You know, who considered himself what we will be considered sort of a, a strict literal interpretation of the Constitution, and other conservatives make that same argument. But that doesn't seem to gel with the intentions then of, of the founding documents and sort of the intentions of the founding of the country. How does that all make sense then? It doesn't really. Um, so, <laughs> uh, so originalism is not based in any sort of historical interpretation or analysis. Um, uh, there's a great historian by the name of Jonathan Ginyap who's at Stanford who's written very eloquently and at length sort of debunking all of these historical themes. And the problem with it is that if if it were a real based in history thing, you would have seen originalism as a judicial philosophy that emerged right away. And it didn't actually emerge as what we know of it today until midway through the 20th century. It's very much a political construct to fight against the New Deal state, to fight against the expansion of executive authority. And it has evolved for very political reasons. Um, because if you take any, you know, any, any clause in the constitution, try and apply very literal construction to it about what the founding generation would have intended, they didn't want me to wear pants. Well, I'm currently wearing pants and that was not as they envisioned society to be because women were supposed to wear dresses. And, you know, African-Americans were counted as three-fifths of a human and they didn't know what planes were. So, I mean, like the concept of trying to apply 1790s thinking to 2021 would have struck them as ridiculous because they knew that they were not all-knowing and they had no intention or desire to be all-knowing. 
Oh, you know, you mentioned a couple of things uh, a while back about juicy, salacious, this sells this and that. So I can already hear a few people that listen to this show that call themselves libertarian. We know what that means. They're not libertarian. Um, how would you grade former President Trump's uh, four years in office? Now, this is I want you to really I know this is tough. And for the people that are not watching on YouTube, you know, you, you <laughs> we're, we're, we're not trying to make a face here. I want to I want to be serious with this because um, I, I look at a couple of things that he did in office. And then you look at, obviously, if you factor in social media, um, what he did in terms of making people in this country really hate the media, commit acts of violence against the media, um, taking all of that aside you know, executive orders, actions, inactions, uh, the Supreme Court justice, and obviously the the sway of balance of the courts right now. Can you summarize for our audience from that his presidential story and hat wearing uh, Dr. Chervinsky now, like President Trump's four years in office? Sure. Um, I will do my best to do so in a um, even keeled, dispassionate sort of way. So I would say that generally historians try and shy away from the word unprecedented because it gets used too much and it loses its value if we throw it around willy-nilly. But there are elements of Trump's presidency that were unprecedented. It was very clear to me while we were living through the administration that it was a historic moment. Um, I will say personally, I'm more comfortable writing about historic moments than I am living through them, but that's okay. It's good to have an awareness of what we're living through. Um, there are some things that I think the history books will view as positives that come from the administration. I think President Trump forced the United States to rethink its policy with China, to rethink its relationship and its focus on Asia versus the rest of the world. I think that was probably long overdue. And um, while perhaps he went about it in a way that I wouldn't necessarily anticipate, I think it will have a positive outcome because it made a lot of Americans and foreign policy experts, especially sort of re recalculate what that relationship looked like. I think um, Trump's the way President Trump uh, engaged in office encouraged Americans to think about what the presidency was, to think about how much was written down, how much is based on statute, but how much is also based on custom and norm and how much of those customs and norms matter to us. And if they matter to us, do they need to be written down and not just rely on tradition or you know, the power of potential shame to enforce that sort of action? I think that's really important. Similarly, I think the way that he uh, disregarded some of the norms and customs forced us to think about what sort of executive reform might be important and whether we're comfortable giving so much power to a president of any party. I think that's a bipartisan concern at the moment. And I think one that's long overdue because Congress has sort of abdicated a lot of its responsibility for oversight. And that was not how the government was supposed to work. So I think that would be a real positive outcome if some more balance and oversight came out of the process. I think that any, there are a lot of specific elements of the presidency that I disagreed with, that I felt were detrimental. Um, the fall of American standing globally, turning the country's back on our allies, regardless of which president did that, I think would be a huge detriment. We cannot live in an isolationist world. That's not how the globe works. It's not how it worked in the 1790s. It's not how it works today. Um, 
the way the pandemic was intentionally mishandled cost hundreds of thousands of lives. And then I think the most damning fact perhaps is any administration that ends in a attempted coup or a violent insurrection cannot be viewed as anything other than a failure. We had had a tradition of over 200 years of peaceful transitions of power. That was something that John Adams and Thomas Jefferson did not take for granted. And I think we as Americans did take it for granted until last January. So I think that will be really the resounding final chapter on the administration and what the history books remember the most. Yeah, I think Sean Hannity's text would agree with you on that one. <laughs> oh, sorry. Yes, did I, 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 didn't realize, so. I didn't realize the microphone was on. Sorry, go ahead, Nick. I mean, Oops. sadly, we didn't have like, you know, like President Jackson, you know, offering a duel with his vice president. I would have been down, would have been down for that. Right. Um, and somehow he, he manages to rank lower than a guy who died about a month in office. Well, you know, so this is really interesting. So um, the C-SPAN, you know, C-SPAN does these presidential rankings every four years. And I actually participated in it this year. And it was absolutely fascinating to see behind the scenes how they're put together because they're way more intricate and detailed than I anticipated. So you basically have, I think it was eight categories. One was, you know, uh, the status of the economy, relationship with Congress, president on the global stage, uh, pursued equal rights for all, um, crisis management, things like that. And then you, oh, and one was communicator, uh, you know, uh, ability as a communicator. And then you had to rank the person from not efficient at all as one to very extremely efficient at 10. And where President Trump did better than some of the others is that communicator piece. And the economy piece, which I think was misguided, but nonetheless. So in those two sections, he ranked better than someone like Andrew Jackson, hence his mm. higher ranking in some other places. And so I thought that seeing that put together was really fascinating because it did explain to me where a lot of the people fall. He ranks better than Jackson. I mean, well, you know, Jackson's have people physically. I don't you think know, he ranks better than Jackson. I, mean, I think he ranks know. better than Andrew Johnson. I think Jackson mm, is still about fair. him. Okay. Sorry, Mike. No, no, <laughs> <laughs> I'm so still getting the, past the Sean Hannity text. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, early in the show, we had Professor Eric Foner on uh, from Columbia University. And the question we'd asked him was around, you know, a lot of his work is around reconstruction, obviously. And, you know, we talked at length about how oftentimes, and Mike has mentioned, you know, my, my background in the education space. And I always, you know, mostly complain via text, but bemoan sometimes on this show where American history curriculum sometimes gets it wrong. And then by the time, if you look over my, yeah, you'll see a copy of Lies My Teacher Told Me, <laughs> which kind of gets back into that from a college professor's standpoint, like what you're getting, you know, when students enter mm -hmm. your classroom. Um, in addition to Reconstruction, Dr. Travinsky, when you think about under, underemphasized, underreported, um, key elements in history that we don't spend enough space focusing on when we think about American history curriculum for high school students. What's another area that comes up for you that, you know, if you could identify one thing and say, I wish we would spend more time, obviously factually getting into a discussion about it, but but actually emphasizing the importance of that, of these pieces of information or processes in you know the typical American history classroom, what would you identify? 
think there are probably three areas and um, they're tricky because often, you know, the way segments um, in our classroom are broken down, they kind of get the, they get a short shrift because of how, you know, these segments get divided up. And I, so I totally understand it, but I think the three elements would be really helpful. The first I've already alluded to, I think all students would benefit by understanding the revolution and the founding as much more messy much more convoluted, much more complicated than some of the stories that we often tell. And that's not to say that, you know, we can't also focus on the ideals of the revolution and how inspiring they can be and should be, but you can have the ideals and the messiness because that was their lived reality. And that's, I think, as I said, it's a much more interesting story. It's also a much more helpful story for understanding our American history. The second moment, I think, uh, is the 1890s and the progressive era when you had a real clash between moneyed interests and sort of labored interests and how that reform took place. Heather Cox Richardson is someone who's written about this a great deal. um, And that moment was one that I think things could have gone really differently. And there are a lot of parallels to the stratification of our contemporary society that we see. So that moment is is really easy to gloss over in favor of things like prohibition and, you know, the coming World War I and things like that. But the tensions of that moment are really important. The last one I would say, and I'm as guilty of this as anyone, because if it's past 1960 for me, it's like, well, it's journalism. It's not history. It's fine. Um, Which is obviously not true. But The 1970s, 1980s, um, it's hard to often get to that moment because it feels fairly recent, but it's not at this point. Now, you know, we're talking 50, 60 years ago, and so much of our current political system and some of the challenges that we're facing and, and even some of the actors that we're talking about are really based in movements and social movements and political movements that really get their start in the 1980s. And so I think if we had a better understanding of the religious and social and cultural and political forces and where they came from, it would help us understand where we are today. Something we asked Professor Foner, and I I want to ask you the same thing too, is, you know, you joined our show today, you know, to engage in this conversation about history. And it's an important subject, especially now. What what else fuels your calling? to do the work that you're doing, to be in this space on a podcast, having your own podcast as well, and being an author, what sort of fuels you, fuels you in the work that you do? It's a good question. So I firmly believe we can't know, you know who we are as a people, as a country, or our current moment without knowing where we came from. These things do not emerge in a vacuum. And for me, the, the motivation for my own scholarship and my own work is explaining the historical origins of our political institutions, especially, or, or political moments or political culture, because I think so much of that is traced back to the early period, and we often don't realize how much is traced back to the early period. And then I share that in a variety of different mediums, because I genuinely believe that most Americans, if they're given real interesting, you know, the sort of scandalous stuff I was talking about, the real juicy history, they want to know it. They just think that if they, if they don't like history, it's probably because they read a textbook that was boring or they had to memorize a series of dates in high school. And I don't blame them. That's not particularly exciting or fun. Or they don't know where to go to find good history or real history. And so I'm committed to trying to meet people where they are, whether that be op-eds or social media or podcasts or blogs or 
events or classes, you know, I'm, I'm kind of willing to hit pavement to find the people and whatever, you know, medium they find most interesting, I'll go there if I can get people to, to read it. And by and large, I mean, we, we, you know, we talked about some of the Twitter responses, we talked about some of the emails, but overwhelmingly the response is really positive and it's really encouraging and it motivates me to continue even when I'm tired and, you know, the writing isn't flowing as easily as I would like it to, but by and large people are really appreciative and want that knowledge and want to learn. And that's really gratifying. Listen, people that are tweeting to Dr. Javinsky, cut it out. Okay. Because now <laughs> I'm going to die. Really dude? Like I'm going to, what are you yeah, doing? So, you're like, you're not even being, I, listen, you're not even being slick there. Nick, Nick knows this. And, and, and I've had other people uh, text me this. They're like, why are you engaging? I'm like, I live for this. I live. <laughs> yeah, he does. He, for engaging. he does all the time. He hits me up like, Nick, you got to get in this. I'm dude, I'm in. <laughs> I'm coaching someone You're right like, now. You're like, I don't want to. Yeah, the, no, funniest, no, no. the funniest part no. is like some of it's not even the it's not even the public responses, although some of those are extreme. It's the direct messages. And it's one thing if someone like, you know, writes like a long paragraph, like right. telling me why they hate me or whatever. Stay um, out of Dr. Shlinsky's DMs. <laughs> yes, yeah, seriously. But, you know but what? the best part, no, the best part is someone was like, You're a loser. And I'm like, that's so creative. That is such a good insult. I've never heard that before. You're back in high school. Look at this. I'm like, what? Yeah. I love engaging because here's the thing, right? The reason I'm engaging is not about, um, you know, their, their opinions, right? Like everybody's entitled to their opinions. I don't care about really. Right. I know. I know. But everybody (laughs) on the surface, right. In theory, the problem I have is sky's blue, sun's yellow. There's a lot of people out there that are sky's red, it's green. Let me tell you why. And it's like, no, no, no. I'm not engaging with you. And and it's happening across America right now. It's, it's been happening, like your article says, since a long time ago. Uh, one of the things that I learned today about Dr. Lindsay Chervinsky, when I was looking her up, okay, I want to read this for everybody. She is skilled at making history exciting and accessible for a broad public audience. I think, and I speak for Nick, that I will take that sentence and say, that is true. That is a Thank fact. You. Okay. Thank that is much. not our opinions. That is actual fact. Dr. Lindsay Chervinsky, go get that book. Like I mentioned, uh, it's called The Cabinet. Um, it's George Washington, The Creation of an American Institution. It's available wherever books are sold. Uh, she's a senior fellow at the Center for Presidential History over at SMU. She's a great presidential historian. I can't thank you enough for thank you, for coming on the podcast today. Continued success to you. And thank you. And stay safe. I know you, you, know, you had that battle with COVID, so I'm glad that you're doing well now. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it and keep up the good work for you guys as well. Do you own or rent your home? Sure you do. And I bet it can be hard work. You know what's easy? Bundling policies with GEICO. GEICO makes it easy to bundle your homeowner's or renter's insurance along with your auto policy. It's a good thing too, because you already have so much to do around your home. Go to GEICO.com, get a quote, and see how much you could save. It's Geico easy. Visit Geico.com today. That's Geico.com. All right. Our thank yous there to Dr. Lindsay Trevinsky, like I mentioned, a presidential historian. You know, I mean, if you remember a while back, we had, we had a gambler on this program, a co-host <laughs> of a gambling podcast. And he said to yeah, us, his name is Brian. He's your boy. What's I wrong know. with you? And he said to us, he <laughs> goes, you guys, 
You guys have historians. You guys have historians, professors, etc., dignitaries. And now you got a gambler. And ever since then, it's gone up. If you if you remember, we were at rock bottom, and now we went back up to to presidential stories. She she's fantastic. Go get that book. Nick Nick was talking about it earlier, but uh, the cabinet, George Washington, the creation of an American institution. You know, one of the things I really appreciated about her. I was reading her her tagline there on, on LinkedIn as a joke, but it is true. Like. American history, sometimes you, you mentioned just those two words together to people and it's, you know, and like, and it shouldn't be like that because there's a lot of parallels. A lot of that stuff's super interesting. Go get the book, uh, follow her on Twitter. She's a great follow on Twitter. Uh, some of your takeaways from the interview before we get into our last segment. You know, Mike, you know, this, everyone who listens to the show, hopefully is, hopefully knows this. I'm a, I'm a person very passionate about American history, uh, mostly because sadly in this country, we don't really emphasize it. You know, we're a country that focuses on standardized tests as it relates to reading and math. So we are just simply passing people on through a very superficial and sometimes erroneous understanding of American history. So whenever we have people on the show, like we had with Dr. Travinsky, like we had with Professor Foner, like we've had with Dr. Michael Eric Dyson, you know, we try to bring, again, we bring on people who know what they're talking about. So her book is fantastic. As we talked about on the show, it's a period in history that not too long ago people got kind of excited back into. You know, Hamilton comes out and everyone's like, oh, wow, the founding fathers are rapping now. And, but I mean, it's based on a really good book, you know, from Ron Chernow about, um, you know, Alexander Hamilton. I, I have, you know, his book on uh, President Grant above me. And, you know, she does a fantastic job of making this information accessible you know, to anyone who was bored of American history, has never really re-engaged with it at a, you know, upon graduating school. You know, there are people out there who do make this information accessible. You know, there is ways to you know, re-engage with the story of how we got here. And I think especially you know, with the previous administration, it leaves you in a place of asking yourself that. And her article, her book all points to the fact that this isn't new. You know, Mike just made a reference to former President Jackson's, you know, relationship with Rachel Jackson. You know, back then, you know, you had I feel like Charlie Murphy now, they'd have a gunfight, right? You know, know, from Chappelle's show. Like it was real back then. You know, we're a little more civil now. We'll engage in Twitter dialogue. People would have pulled a gun on you in the 1828 if you'd said some slanders about somebody. So things have gotten perhaps a little more civilized, but Again, these are all the stories that make up this country. We're less than 300 years old. We are a you know a burgeoning experiment in democracy, and it's important you hear people who know the stories that they're talking about. And Dr. Javinsky is certainly one of them. Well, a perfect segue. You could not have done better because her article was about misinformation, disinformation. Let's get into our last segment: Spotify, Joe Rogan, the Joe Rogan experience. We've been talking about Joe Rogan a diff- uh, different times and intervals on this podcast because. And I've said this a bunch, uh, and I feel very passionate about this now that you and I have been podcasting for a, a little over a year and, and some change. And you know, words matter, and we talk to people who know what they're talking about, right? You're not getting so much. You're getting Nick and I's opinion about certain things, but there's some factual correlations, right? We we try to introduce stuff that's been vetted before on news channels. We bring that in in soundbite format. Then we bring on guests that have either worked in administrations or are covering this. You know, we're trying to lend to expert opinions, and and some of it is done through the lens of my producer hat and vetting the people that we're going to have on the show, just like. We had Dr. Paul Offit on the on the program recently, right? 
head of a children's hospital of Philadelphia in the pediatric division. He's their director of, uh, of the education of the vaccine education center. He's written a book on, on the history of vaccines. And not only that, he's on the head advisory committee in this country, the FDA advisory committee, right? Uh, an expert in the field of vaccinations and specifically what vaccinations look like for pediatrics, right? Kids under, under the age of 17. Um, Joe Rogan has recently gotten into a bunch of turmoil, as we all know, because of different doctors that he's had on the podcast. Um, and both of them have given way to things that have been debunked. Uh, and then Spotify came out and recently the CEO came out uh, apologizing for it, promises to better regulate the COVID misinformation that there's going to be now uh, some buttons that appear underneath some of the episodes if they say that uh, they include some type of misinformation. Take a listen to what Joe Rogan recently said. He just posted this on an IG post this past week about his response uh, to all of this and the backlash that he's been getting. I do not know if they're right. I don't know because I'm not a doctor. I'm not a scientist. I'm just a person who sits down and talks to people and has conversations with them. Do I get things wrong? Absolutely. I get things wrong, but I try to correct them. Whenever I get something wrong, I try to correct it because I'm interested in telling the truth. I'm interested in finding out what the truth is. And I'm interested in having interesting conversations with people that have differing opinions. Um, I'm not interested in only talking to people that uh, have one perspective. That's one of the reasons why I had Sanjay Gupta on, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, who I respect very much, and I really enjoyed our conversation together. He has a different opinion than those men do. I had Dr. Dr. Michael Osterholm on at the very beginning of the pandemic. Um, he is on President Biden's COVID-19 advisory board. I had uh, Dr. Peter Hotez on, who is uh, a vaccine expert. I'm interested in finding out what is correct and find, I'm also finding out how people come to these conclusions and what the facts are. Okay. So there's a lot to digest there. I, I want to first get into, you know, we like to talk about the factual information. So this past week, Spotify said it had deleted 20,000 podcast episodes. It believes were spreading misinformation or disinformation about COVID-19, including 40 of them from Rogan's catalog. He's got about 1,768 episodes as of this taping, okay? The the episode that kickstarted the current criticism of Spotify's COVID coverage is still available. And it, it doesn't have, as of this taping, a content advisory sticker, which is going to be the new format. Spotify is going to have a label on it. It's going to have, you know, saying that th there, there may be some misinformation. I don't know what the label actually looks like. I actually do not have Spotify myself, um, not because of, you know, I'm not boycotting anything. So I don't, don't write me any letters. Okay. But uh, I don't, I don't use Spotify. I use Apple music. Um, so recently um, a group, you know, there's about 250 doctors and scientists, or excuse me, 260 healthcare professionals. They wrote an open letter lambasting Spotify for an episode of the Joe Rogan experience. And it featured that guest that we were just talking about, Robert Malone, and it promoted baseless conspiracy theories. Their statement was, and as quoted, by allowing the propagation of false and societal harmful assertions, Spotify is enabling its host media, its hosted media to damage public trust in scientific research and sow doubt in the credibility of data-driven guidance offered by medical professionals. And then obviously we all know what happened with Neil Young and recently Brene Brown says she will stop making exclusive episodes 
of her Dare to Unlock series that appears exclusively on Spotify. You saw Prince and Prince Harry and, and Meghan Markle. Oh, they haven't done an episode in over a year, but I mean, they're still collecting money somehow. And they were like, well, we're not doing any episodes anymore. And they were like, Spotify was like, yeah, you weren't doing any episodes anyway. Um, in the seriousness of this, the problem I have with what Joe Rogan just said before, right? And by the way, Dr. Peter Hotez, great doctor down there at the Baylor Medical Center, he was supposed to come on the program. Uh, and obviously, we, we ended up getting Dr. Offit instead. Uh, we also have Dr. Rob Davidson that will be coming on in a few weeks. And, and he's an ER physician at a big hospital in Michigan. But here's my problem. He, he's there's, there's a level of, I've said this before, I only say it because I either know somebody that works for these people and in the Rogan camp, I don't know anybody in the Rogan camp. So I'm not going to sit here and claim that I know somebody in the Rogan camp. I don't. Um, but what I've noticed is for other people that have similar shows of similar formats that claim to be in this, I'm in this middle lane, right? The problem is not talking to people that have differing opinions. You know, that's not the problem. That is not the issue. I've said this a bunch on this show. You are allowed to be a conservative. You're allowed to be a Democrat, whether it's a progressive Democrat or a Joe Manchin conservative Democrat. You want to be a radical centrist like uh, Olivia Troy told us on this program. You want to be somebody that just doesn't trust the government. You're, you're allowed all of those beliefs. At some point, though, there has to be a fact in there, not Nick Savary's fact, not Mike Leon's fact, not Dr. Chavinsky's fact, who just came on the last segment. A fact, the fact. Okay. And the problem is when he invites people on that are blatantly spewing misinformation, right? Blatantly spewing it. Okay. Again, accepted by the medical community. And I don't want to keep playing what Joe Rogan said on his Instagram page because one of the things he said was, well, science is always changing. If you remember early on, uh, if you said that COVID 19 emanated from a lab, you would get kicked off of YouTube or wherever. And now it's plausible, right? And everyone's talking about, we're not talking about that, Joe. You know, we're not talking about that. You know, we're not talking about that. You are allowed to have differing opinions. I'm all for banter. Okay. I'm all for it. The problem is not differing opinions. The problem is it's not steeped in facts. So when you have somebody on, we will never have somebody on this program that is not speaking truth, not my truth, not Nick Savary's truth, not that guess's truth, the actual truth. Okay. When we bring on a correspondent, it's a correspondent that has covered this topic extensively. If we were a perfect example, we're going to do the Russia Ukraine and what's happening there in the coming weeks, right? And the people that we are going to have on are foreign policy experts that have been in the region, have worked for an administration, have, have I've covered this. One's a Moscow bureau chief for the New York Times. Like I'm not sitting here having somebody on that is a mouthpiece. I'm not going to have Ron Johnson on the program <laughs> to talk about what Putin is doing there. I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to have somebody blatantly on that uh, is flouting, you know, the, the norms of, of what the actual truth is. I can't, I, I don't want to do that. There are tons of podcasts in this space. Yet Rudy Giuliani's out there, Dan Bogino, all, you know, all the regular guys. Okay. They all live on one side of the aisle. I'm, I'm sorry. If you want to throw the, the side of the aisle thing and say that there are some democratic ones that, 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 that lie. Yeah. There's ones that give their opinion and most of it is making fun of Republicans. I'll agree with you on that hundred percent, but at some point, you know, there's data behind some of this stuff. We have to live in 
reality. I can't live in fantasy land and, and, and Joe Rogan over here, you know, giving a platform to some of these guys that are spouting things that have been debunked by experts in this field. Nick and I are not scientists. We're not doctors. Even Nick's wife was a doctor. I'm sure she probably has a sterner, a stern opinions about some of this stuff. And those things matter way more than Nick and I's. Okay. But at the end of the day, right, we're not going to sit here and bring somebody on the program that, that is going to do what Joe Rogan did, because that is, he, he is twisting what he's trying to do. He's over here telling you that he wants to, you know, lend X, you know, lend way for people with differing opinions. That's not it, my man. You know, that's not it. We all have to agree that the sky is blue and the sun is yellow. When you bring somebody on the pod, like I just mentioned in the last segment that says it's red and green, that person should not be on the podcast anymore. That's it. That episode should be gone. That's not, that's not, uh, uh, you know, violating your first amendment. No, it's not. It's a private company, Spotify, et cetera. They have a terms of use and privacy policy. You have to adhere to it. And then the second thing is, is like, you can't shout fire in a crowded movie theater. And by bringing somebody on that's telling a lie, you're openly giving them a microphone to shout fire in a crowded movie theater. I don't understand what you, what, what don't people get about this? Email, email us at canwepleasetalkpodcast at gmail.com if you do not understand that basic norm. Because I go back to the first episode on this podcast. The first thing I mentioned on this episode, we were talking about the age of Trump. We talked about Newt Gingrich. And when Newt Gingrich, during the RNC in 2015, went on CNN, and Allison Camerota, he was talking about crime in, in major cities. And Allison Camerota gave him the stat about how crimes, specifically murders and homicides, right? And, and bur- I think uh, burglaries, grand theft, larceny, things like that were all down in, some, in like the top 10 major cities. And he goes, yeah, well, that's your fact. I'll roll with my opinion. <laughs> no, no, it's not Allison Camerota's fact. It's not CNN's fact. It's the facts. And, and so I, that's the problem. If you continue to have people on like that, I don't even know if that was an apology that Joe Rogan did. It's just semantics at this point. I, I want you, I want to hear your take on it, but it got me fired up this morning. I had a, I had a bunch of things written down of what I wanted to say. And then I'm like, you know what, throw this away because at the end of the day, I know that he is not being genuine. It's not about differing opinions. It's about that person. Again, the shirt I'm wearing right now, folks, is a black shirt. Okay. Does it make me look stupid? Maybe. And that's your opinion. That's fine. We can argue the second. We can't argue the first. The shirt's black. You know, I I don't, I actually think Rogan is being authentic in what he's saying. And I think that therein lies the problem because when you're saying that you're willing to, and I mean, he said this in his clip about, I want to hear alternative viewpoints. I think there are some times, and this is where I think as a country, we're really struggling. It seems like there should be some areas that are pretty black and white in this, in the public discourse. Joe Biden won the, won the election. COVID-19 is real. Vaccines are effective. The sky is blue. Mike's wearing a black shirt. I mean, and on and on and on. And when Rogan says, and this is true for any podcaster or anyone radio-wise too, who who wants to bring on people to have alternative opinions, what you're really saying is, I want people who make things interesting because there's a segment of people who truly are so disconnected, who really think that everyone else is wrong and they're right. And I want those numbers. And I think Mike and I talk often offline about this, of the advent that there are people who are being intellectually disingenuous. And they do it primarily because it's profitable. 
you know, full disclosure, Mike and I, we joke about this, that the format of our show and our continuing rise from an, from an analytic standpoint is good. It's progressive, but it's incremental. We know if we simply said a couple of words such as Biden didn't win, Trump's still the president and blah, 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 our numbers would go through the roof. We know this. There's there's proof to show you that. Go down the street on podcast lane and go look at you know the nonsense that's coming out of Bongino's show. And I don't even know if he believes this stuff, but it sells. And we've seen this with Tucker Carlson. There's a whole market now of people that realize that if you broadcast a message that is just scurrilous, is that even the word? I think I remember hearing it. Um, and you can just be able to get people's attention. In short, what Rogan basically said was he both sides it. And when we talk about that, we talk about Charlottesville back in 2017, you know, when the president had accused, you know, allegedly Antifa and a bunch of wannabe Nazis for being basically both, you know, cut from the same cloth. Rogan did the same thing. And I think anyone now that's trying to, you know, provide a discourse that's both sizing it, you should look at them. You should look at them with a level of suspicion. You know, this it's perfect timing. I say this later this year, Ken Burns, we all know, amazing documentarian, him and Lynn Novick are collaborating again, doing a three-part episode series on the US and the Holocaust. And part of that documentary is going to talk about our reaction as a country to what was going on in Europe in the in the late 30s and the 40s. Um, and our reaction to it. And <laughs> arguably how we really didn't have a reaction until it was too late. And as a country, we're, we're entering that kind of place again, where we're willing to deny things because it doesn't feed a, a narrative that we're telling ourselves. You know, If you're someone that doesn't believe in vaccines, you have no evidence to back your argument, but you truly believe it, then you're going to listen to those certain episodes of Rogan's because you want confirmation bias. It's a cognitive bias that we live with every day now. We're very selective about the news that we read, the people that we talk to. So someone like Rogan recognizes that and says, hey, I want to bring, I want to have a wider tent and bring you all in. And the problem with that is, especially now in a time of a global health crisis, if you believe it, and yes, it's real, then you're trying to find what can best be considered alternative you know, facts. And quite honestly, that's BS. Yeah. Uh, listen, look, if anybody is advocating for you to stop listening to Joe Rogan, uh, you you have you're entitled to listen to Joe Rogan, but like this guy who it, it hit us up on Twitter that said, "Hey, it's entertainment and people should take it at entertainment." And I wrote back, and he, and I'm sorry, in his response he said, "Just like your show is entertainment." And I wrote back to him, "I'm Kiss not doing my ass, it, dude." I was like, "I'm not doing it for enter- We're not doing this for entertainment. We're doing this to inform and learn." And 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 I I was telling somebody this, I I want our show to be boring. Boring because it, it actually gives you information. People snooze, just like we talked about in the last segment with Dr. Javinsky, sometimes at the words of American history and how it's taught in school and like the format and the way it's given curriculum-wise to kids. And yes, it could be boring. I get that, but it's informational, right? And like I want to do that. I don't want to, I don't want to do this you know, four click things and, and the Dems are this and the R's are that. I don't want to do that. And Rogan's gotten down this rabbit hole of COVID-19 as if he's some expert when he's just you and I. And then in the video, he's over here saying he's not a doctor and scientist, but he's over here telling you in another IG live 
that he's taking, you know, that, that the warmer, the, the horse, the warmer ivermectin, and it's like, as if he knows, you know, the side effects or not even consulting with a doctor. Like I, I, that's I, the game. That's the game now is you I don't do this. Do and when someone calls you out, you're like, well, I'm, I'm not a doctor. Yeah, no, no, no. It's just entertainment. You, you shouldn't be listening to me. It's like, it's the same thing. If you ever watch a Law & Order SVU episode, they'll always have, they always make fun of like an Alex Jones type <laughs> of episode. And that guy will never get convicted because he's like, oh, I didn't tell them to shoot anybody. I was just saying it because, you know, free speech and stuff like that. So look, I want to wrap here because I don't want the episodes to be too long. Nick knows that I have a pr- I have a price point, folks, that we like to hit a time point, I should say. But if if you have Spotify, you know, and you listen to Joe Rogan, that's fine. Just know what you're listening to. Just like we talk about news judgment, vet the series of facts across trusted sources. Please, please, folks, news judgment. It's very important. Uh, speaking of judgment, you have good judgment if you're listening to this program. If you want to watch the video clips of this YouTube you can watch all the video clips of all of our interviews, uh, IG, TikTok, Twitter, at Can We Please Talk Podcast on Twitter, at Can We Please Talk. Email us if you have any questions about tonight's episode. Uh, if you want to talk to Dr. Chavinsky, we can put you in touch with her. Uh, at can We Please Not, Talk? Well, hold on. You're right. Not <laughs> if you're going to give her your number and be a creep. No, like no, no, no. Stop. <laughs> right. I think, we talk, I think we talked about that in nausea, but uh, Can We Please Talk Podcast at gmail.com. Shout out to our hosting platform, ACAST, as always, in the show notes. You can click and donate to this show so we we can continue to bring you fantastic guests like Dr. Chavinsky. As always, we thank each and every one of you for listening to this program. I'm Mike Leon. And glad I'm not working with Joe Rogan. I'm Nick Severi. <laughs> Have a good one, everybody. Later. Later.